Good morning. Biden in Vietnam is a containment for China. Kim Jong-un is summoned to Russia. The mayor of New York City announces massive budget cuts, blaming the Biden administration. And a congressman is booed off the stage in Chelsea. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday morning, September 12, 2023. President Joe Biden spent the weekend in Hanoi, the capital of Vietnam, finalizing a diplomatic agreement moving the United States into a comprehensive strategic partnership with its former enemy. It's the top tier of the Southeast Asian nation's trading relationships. The meeting came after Biden's controversial visit to India, where he shook hands with Saudi Arabia's leader, Mohammed bin Salman, despite his involvement in the murder of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi. During a previous meeting, the two had fist-bumped. In Hanoi, Biden assured the world the United States is not attempting to contain China, Vietnam's northern neighbor. One of the things we've done, I've tried to do, and I've talked with a number of staff about this for the last, I guess, six months, is we have an opportunity to strengthen alliances around the world to maintain stability. That's what this trip is all about. Having India cooperate much more with the United States, be closer to the United States, Vietnam being closer to the United States, it's not about containing China. It's about having a stable base, a stable base in the Indo-Pacific. Vietnam is a nation rich in important resources, and despite bitter memories of the decade-long war with the United States, Vietnam is envisioned by the U.S. as a future producer of computer chips. Author James Bradley lives in Saigon, once the sprawling capital of a U.S.-supported South Vietnam, now known as Ho Chi Minh City, after the communist leader who led the resistance against Western colonial powers. Bradley says Biden is chasing a pipe dream. At the press conference, it's key to look at the words. He stood up and he said, I had a good meeting here in Vietnam. And then he started talking about, you know, allies in Taiwan and Japan and South Korea and Australia and India. Whoa, 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 whoa. That, wor- that verbiage, Vietnam doesn't agree with any of that. Vietnam is not an ally. Vietnam is not holding hands with South Korea, Japan, Australia. No, no, no. Those are all countries that America controls. Vietnam's independent. And that verbiage that Biden used, that was not discussed with the Vietnamese. That's uh, pretty cheeky on the part of the United States, to put it mildly. It's like me coming to your house and then all of a sudden talking about policies that you don't agree with. Well, how about the day after I threw you out of my house? It wasn't polite. And the Vietnamese don't agree with that tell you what happened that is not being reported in the press. What happened was that Vietnam allows Russia and China as their top tier trading partners. All Vietnam did is said to the United States, after 20 years of you begging and then a president coming here to beg for the right, we will elevate you to the top tier along with Russia and China as a top tier trading partner of Vietnam. It was Vietnam who gave America an advantage after many years of them requesting. The Americans get the idea that Biden swept in and gave some favors and no, no, no. It was Biden asking Vietnam for a favor. Mm-hmm. Biden's next stop going to be North Korea? His stop should be Beijing. One quarter of the world's population lives in China. Secretary of State Blinken should buy a house there. 
If he spends three days in London, he should spend three weeks in Beijing, just according to the world population. We're ignoring the big power in Asia. It's like me coming to New York, and I only go to Staten Island. I never go to the other boroughs. It doesn't make sense. By pushing Ukraine into a proxy war, building bases, encircling China, are we getting ready? We're going to fight all two fronts. I heard an ancient saying the other day that I wish I had heard years ago, and it is that the state cannot be governed without the threat of war. I'm concerned about war, not so much against China in the water here or against Russia. It's to discipline Peoria. War is a way to discipline the domestic populace. Biden has so many problems. I do expect them to ramp up war. The、uh, idea that Vietnam is a human rights violator or treats its dissidents poorly, the U.S. is going to be hitting them with that and other axes of evil in the making. Is that what's happening? Such a laughable joke. How many hundreds of political prisoners do you have in the, your dungeons in Washington D.C., right under the feet of senators and representatives, right under the feet of the Supreme Court, metaphorically? You have political prisoners. You're indicting your political opposition. You want to send your political opposition to jail for hundreds of years. When I first came out here to Asia four decades ago, we were a great example. Now I'm sorry. The Vietnamese—they don't want to be like San Francisco and Chicago. They don't want to have dungeons full of political prisoners like Washington D.C. does. Anything you like to add? There's no homeless here in Vietnam. The American people living on the street are living at a level of poverty far below anyone in Vietnam. Author James Bradley lives in Saigon. He's currently writing a book about the Vietnam War from the side of the Vietnamese fighters. And North Korea's leader Kim Jong Un set forth on a special armored train on Monday, headed for a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in the city of Vladivostok. He had been personally invited by Putin. While the agenda was not made public, United States officials say the two will probably discuss possible arms deals to aid Russia and Ukraine. In Washington on Monday, State Department spokesperson Matt Miller said the meeting was a sign Russia had been weakened in 18 months of war. The fact that Russia is ha having to beg North Korea for military support. Speaks to the effectiveness of our sanctions and our export controls, that they have been denied the technology they need and the the, the raw materials they need to fund to, to, to sustain this my, war effort. The second part of my question, and I'll stop after this, is you have used the word "beg" twice now. What what makes you think that he's actually begging? Don't the Russians have anything to offer the North Koreans that the North Koreans might want?、Uh, it, that may be the outcome of this meeting. Well, um, but you use but, the word "beg."、Um, I, I think it's fair to say that this that having to travel across uh, uh, the length of his own country to to his, ask but it's、uh, his own country. Yeah,、so、I, I, I, mean, I know to meet with an international pariah to ask for assistance in a war that he expected but, to win okay, in the opening month.、Uh, okay. uh, look, I may uh, I, I would characterize it his as him. Uh, uh, Begging for assistance. Now we'll see. There may be something that he offers in exchange. We'll see what it comes. We'll monitor it very closely. Both Pyongyang and Moscow have denied weapons sales are being discussed. Closer to home, 
New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced Saturday there may be massive cuts of 15% to all city agencies by next spring. He says the migrant crisis that has brought over 100,000 asylum seekers to New York City may cost the city a staggering $12 billion over the next three years. We're in the middle of a humanitarian crisis involving asylum seekers, a crisis that will cost our city $12 billion over three fiscal years. While our compassion is limitless, our resources are not. Adams followed his budget warning with more bad news on Sunday. He told reporters he may have to move migrant families with children into congregate homeless shelters. The city's right to shelter law, which Adams is fighting in court, prohibits putting children into the mass shelters, basically a large room with cots and no privacy. Christine Quinn is CEO of Wynn, the largest provider of housing for unhoused women and children in the city. She says the mayor's statements are unacceptable. For about a year now, the uh, governor of Texas and to some degree the governor of Florida have very unceremoniously been sending asylum seekers to New York. And we need to remember, these are courageous people. They've walked through rivers to get to freedom, fleeing intense violence, poverty we cannot understand, and sex trafficking and more. Instead of reflecting the views of the Statue of Liberty that kind of should be guiding our city, the mayoral response has been, they are a problem. They cost too much. They can't come anymore. We're going to make the places that they get housed substandard and inhumane, and hopefully they'll stop coming. That's not New York. For over 40 years, we have had laws and court case rulings that guarantee a right to housing for anyone in New York City. You don't have to be a citizen. You don't even have to be a longtime resident. And the mayor is trying to undercut those. And just this past weekend, he floated the idea of putting families with children in congregate shelters. Think of a big dormitory floor laid out with cops. That is not an appropriate or safe place for children to be. So it's critical that all of us in the city who see this differently really respond and organize because this is a very, very dangerous situation. Now, let me be clear. Should the federal government be giving us money? Yes. Are they acting incorrectly by not helping us? Yes, 100%. But our response to that cannot be to vilify immigrants and fail to give them the services that they deserve. Who's backing the mayor on this? I mean, I I look at it from a political scientist point of view. Who's the class, the faction, the groups in New York City who actually think that the mayor is doing the right thing here? We've seen in some places where welfare hotels or shelters have been proposed for the asylum seekers. We've seen some neighborhoods speak out aggressively. That's no different than what we see whenever you propose a shelter. That really, to me, is just background noise. Mostly, I think we're seeing people not support the mayor's position on this because it is extreme and does not fit in with the kind of agenda and ethos that is New York.
Every politician is trying to get reelected. So where does he see, you know, his support coming? Oh, in the, God. The- you know, if, if I knew that what he was thinking, I would be in a better spot for how <laughs> to respond. And, uh, right. He has a unique coalition. So I think he's trying to keep that together. And what's the big fear here is that they're taking jobs away from New Yorkers. All of the fears, in my opinion, about immigrants are based on ignorance. They're going to take jobs. They're going to take seats from our children in schools. They're going to be lawless. They're, none of those things are true. Statistics never bear those things out. Simply not true. It's simply just typical anti-immigrant rhetoric. This is taking it out on people who aren't immigrants in the same way, not migrants in this sense, but people who are living in shelters, putting families in congregate shelters. It's taking it out the most vulnerable, who have no ability to defend themselves. What's going to happen? Is there going to be court actions? I don't see legal aid or any of the other groups putting up with this. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And maybe they were just floating this as a trial balloon, but if it comes to pass, stay tuned. Is he trying to stir up trouble by saying stuff like this to maybe get the attention of the government? Some have said he may be doing that, and I understand that urge, but that has to be done carefully. And this was not surgical, if you will. Christine Quinn is CEO of WIN, the largest provider of housing for unhoused women and children in the city. She says New York City must expand housing vouchers to New Yorkers who are non-citizens, a plan that Quinn adds could save the city $3 billion a year. And in more local news... Congressional Representative Jerry Nadler faced boos and catcalls September 6th at the Fulton Senior Center in Chelsea, where Community Board 4 was holding a meeting. Residents of the two housing projects located between 9th and 10th Avenue are enraged by Nadler's support of a plan to demolish and rebuild a half dozen buildings and replacing the public housing with a luxury 3,500-unit development. Dozens of tenants of the Elliott, Chelsea, and Fulton houses jammed the meeting chanting, My house is not for sale, and no demolition. So what do you guys think? Our buildings need to be demolished? No, no, right? they're repairable, right? All we need is a little fixing here. We don't need no demolish these buildings. They're too young. They're younger than me. So if I'm repairable, these buildings are repairable. That's right. Right, guys? No demolition. No demolition. No demolition. No demolition. The current rent at the projects is less than $700 a month. Market rates and fast gentrifying Chelsea are well over $3,000 a month. The two adjacent projects built in 1947 and 1961 are administered together. Elliott Chelsea Houses is named after John Lovejoy Elliott, who founded the Hudson Guild, an early advocacy group for poor New Yorkers still active in the neighborhood. Among the famous residents born there are Whoopi Goldberg and the multi-talented Wyans family. Resident Jacqueline Laura has lived in Fulton houses for more than 20 years. She says tenants are scared, and the city housing authority, NYCHA, has been silent on their plans. Now under the table, without the res- we're the last one to know that they're doing a demolition. And, you know, where it gets that? These buildings are repairable, and I want to stay in my own building and my own apartment. Aren't they promising to let you move back? 
Um, I'm, I'm not really sure. I can't say that. That is the promise, but I don't believe it. Why don't you believe it? Um, because it's been happening in a lot of states where developments are being demolished and nobody comes back, probably 80%. And I'm sure people will come back, but they will have to pay that market rate rent. And I think for two years, he's going to let us live here. But after that, every, he's going to say, oh, we, they stopped funding us, you got to go. You have a private owner now instead of the city. It used to be the government owned your, your property. Well, the now. city still owns it, which is NYCHA. But the private developer is not fully on board yet. I mean, he got, I guess he put a down payment. Let's put it that way. Are you trying to stop that from happening? Yes, I would love to stop it. And I was also in the working group. And it also, in the working group, it also said that if this developer couldn't, wouldn't, didn't comply with the conversion, we could vote another developer in. So I don't know why we're wasting time with this developer. He should have started the conversion already. So uh, how long have you lived here? 21 years. What brought you here? Um, I came from a homeless shelter. And I loved the apartment. When we moved there, it looked like condos. And I appreciate it, and I'm grateful. And I love my community, and I enjoy having the Google building. You see that Google building? My best parade is the Pride Day, because they decorated with all those beautiful rainbow colors, and I can see it out my window destroying a community here if they get rid of this. Oh yes, it's just going to be for the rich. And how much rich can you be out here? I mean, all these developments they're making, it's only for rich. Where are they going to put us at? I belong here too. Even though I'm low income, but I belong here. This reporter caught up with Representative Nadler after he was whisked away from the angry tenants by a gruff security officer. Nadler defended the demolition, saying the tenants won't have to leave their homes during construction. Congressman, why do you think they're so upset? Because they misunderstand the project. They, they might yep. not be alive if, uh, when the housing is built. Okay, we get to your left, sir. Get no, a chance. That's not true. What do you think about, you know, their feeling is they won't be alive. The buildings they're living in now are in terrible condition. The plan is to build new buildings in the empty space and then to move them into the, new, into the new buildings. And this should be done fairly rapidly. And Donald Trump, do you think that Donald Trump was rightfully... Meanwhile, former Lower East Side Council member and community activist Margarita Lopez was also at the CB4 meeting for another issue, opposing the city's plan to move retirees to a private managed care health plan. Lopez was involved in building five low-income projects on the Lower East Side. She says the key ingredient is communication. If that communication is not there, I don't see how they can get to a place where they will save the interest, which is to return here. I say this because I have done it, because I participated in, in at least five different occasions with five different developments in the city of New York when I was an organizer. And the tenants came back, and we did what we needed to do. Then the issue is, is communication about this for real? Because it doesn't seem to me. Founded on the Lower East Side in 1934, the authority has grown to house 360,000 New Yorkers and 335 public housing developments. NYCHA also administers Section 8 rent subsidies for 235,000 New Yorkers. The Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development in an initiative called PACT-RAD, 
wants to convert city-owned housing to private landlords, then subsidize the rent with vouchers. 36,000 NYCHA apartments have been privatized in recent years. And in a vote by residents conducted by NYCHA, more than half the tenants support demolition. But the vote has been criticized by Legal Aid and the Community Service Society as misleading. Prior to the meeting, tenants say they made their true feelings known in the streets. And in a labor debate that's pitting unionists in New York City against each other, the city's largest union, DC 37, has texted its members, calling on them to oppose a bill guaranteeing traditional Medicare to retired city workers. DC 37 is supporting Mayor Adams' cost-cutting move to shift 250,000 retired workers to the Advantage Care privatized health system. The bill, written by Brooklyn Council member Charles Barron, would require the city to offer its premium, free, traditional plan to retired workers. A supporter of the bill is former Lower East Side Council member and community activist Margarita Lopez. Well, the mayor is betraying all of the retirees of this city with the move of taking away our traditional Medicare. The issues that the mayor confronted are issues that he inherited from Bill de Blasio when he was a mayor. And at the time, they negotiated a deal, Bill de Blasio and the unions, in order to increase salaries with money that they didn't have. And they decided that the way that they were going to pay back the fund that was going to be given in increase of salaries was taking away the reserve of the monies that exist for Medicare and the payments to the retirees' health care program. Now that's done. It's not a done deal. Where does the money come back? No, that's not a done deal. A done deal is the, the shenanigans that was done by the mayor, Bill de Blasio, the acceptance of that shenanigan from the mayor that is now in place, he should not accept that. He should not accept when the unions come to him to propose such a ridiculous proposal when we, retirees, have a contract in place for this Medicare. And that contract began long, 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 long time ago. And that contract established that this is not a gift. We pay for this. We pay Medicare over the years that we work. Therefore, now, the mayor, who is in place now, accepted the shenanigans from Bill de Blasio. We are not accepting that shenanigans. That is his problem. And he will have to resolve it. And that's the reason we are in court. And we have won three times so far on the state court. And the mayor keeps losing. And he keeps appealing. I did the story on the victory just a week or two ago. Why, yeah. why you still have to come out and talk to people about this? Because the mayor again went to court. Again. Then this will be the fourth time that he go to court to stop our rightful, justify opposition to what he's trying to do. But he's not alone. He's with the unions. Okay, the unions that 
with de Blasio began the shenanigans. And finally, Japan began pumping more than a million tons of treated radioactive water from the destroyed Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station last week. Tokyo Electric Power, TEPCO, says it's filtered out most contaminants, but the radioactive form of water, called tritium, remains at high levels. Japan and the International Atomic Energy Agency say the water is safe, but anti-nuclear activists say the effect of tritium is more than a drop of water in the ocean. The radiation and health specialist for Beyond Nuclear is Cindy Fokers. Japan and TEPCO, which is the utility that's trying to handle all of this mess, this catastrophe, have not been transparent in what they've been trying to do and in what the containers actually have. Only 40% of these containers have been analyzed for any kind of contamination at all. We really don't know what's in them as a matter of public accessibility. The marine experts are also concerned because they know that the dilution is not the solution in this case, because they know that this stuff, a lot of these isotopes, including the tritium, bioaccumulate. What does bioaccumulate mean? It means collect. So you can drop, let's say they're planning on releasing the stuff on decades, and you get a little bit of tritium, and then you get a little more tritium, and then the plants take the tritium in, and they make it bind to carbon, and then they collect more of it and more of it and more of it, and then a fish comes along and eats the plant. And then the fish is eaten by a bigger fish. Say, for instance, salmon, which, you know, a lot of people consume salmon. Salmon eats fish. Salmon can collect in its flesh. And so it just keeps building and building and building and collecting to a greater and greater concentration up the food chain. Should people, if they go eat seafood or go to the store, be bringing, especially in Hawaii and the West Coast of the United States and the countries that border the Pacific, be bringing their Geiger counters? Will that work? No. No, it won't work. The kind of radiation that's given off by a number of these isotopes, not just tritium, is the kind of contamination that will be inside the fish and its flesh and its bone, but you won't be able to measure it from the outside. You might be able to measure it if you destroy the food, ash it or pulp it, and then you have a more sophisticated Geiger counter where you put it in a chamber that's kept from the outside, but you will not, with your handheld Geiger counter, be able to tell if this food is contaminated, certainly not with tritium, not with strontium. To a degree with radiocesium, you might be able to, but it's, it's very tricky, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> Unless you like your food ashed or pulped, you're not going to be able to consume food in any sort of normal way or really know what's, that these radioisotopes are in there. The United States, the state of California, Alaska, etc., aren't they going to do that? Wouldn't they take samples and tell us like they did mercury in the fish in the old days? They can take samples, but the contamination of foodstuffs may not be uniform with the radionuclides, which means that you could be sampling something that's completely fine, but this fish, for this fish, but then that fish over there has much more contamination. They just caught a fish, a rockfish off the coast of Fukushima that was 180 times what the limit for consumption is in Japan, and this was radiocesium. It was 180 times. If they hadn't caught it, it could have just gone right into the food stream. And a lot of the places, like the EU, has just severely curtailed what was a more robust monitoring program. I'm not saying it was perfect. A lot of the governments across the world are now sort of rolling back their safety standards. In Japan, their amount that's allowed in food is 12 times less for radiocesium, for instance, and it's less for strontium as well, than the foodstuffs that are allowed in the U.S. 
even if they'd catch something or they would find something that was contaminated above their limit but below the, the limit for the U.S., why wouldn't they just go ahead and import it to the United States? Fish from Japan could wind up in U.S. markets. You have to ask the question, yes. You have to ask the question if they would find radiocesium contamination in this case, which they might be able to find using external measurement devices without destroying the food sample. Yes, you have to ask that question. Why is our limit so much more than theirs? When Fukushima first happened, people in California stopped eating fish and the market in fish seafood collapsed. Is that what you're suspecting is going to happen now or are you even recommending that people not eat seafood? Depends on, of course, where the seafood comes from. Personally, for me, and this is just for me, I have not eaten food that I have known any food from Japan since the catastrophe started. But that's personally for me. That includes fish, it includes tea, it includes anything from Japan unless I can tell exactly where it's sourced from. Everyone has to make that personal choice for themselves when it comes to food that is imported from Japan that may have come from contaminated areas, land or sea. People don't understand the, the, just what kind of disaster this is to their country. It's really a tragedy, especially since these folks were tied to their land. They have religious shrines and ancestral shrines there in what are now contaminated areas. And it's absolutely heartbreaking how this catastrophe, and it's ongoing, has sort of rended communities apart, just completely upended some of the culture, hundreds of years old. It's really upsetting. These companies, uh, are they doing stuff that the movies would call evil if this was a Marvel Comics version? They're trying to make money, or they're trying to save money. And in doing so, they are not taking full stock of exactly what this particular energy source can wreak on people. It really is the height of arrogance to think, well, we can just release this to the ocean, even though the fishers protest. People in North Korea are still protesting, and people in the Pacific don't want it. It violates human rights, as this letter that came out from this one group, Ocean Visions Legal, says it violates UN protocols on human rights, and it certainly seems to. These companies, they just don't seem to want to understand just how horrible this technology is and just how it can destroy lives and cultures and generations. They just don't want to see it. A lot of the bad health impacts and the potentially genetic impacts that happen with this technology and the catastrophe and the radiation that comes from it would be longer term. The industry tends to use that because if you don't develop a cancer for, you know, 10 or 20 years your child gets sick with a rare kind of cancer, but you can't specifically tie it back to radiation. There are all sorts of ways that they can take the longer-term impacts of radiation exposure, cover them up and say, oh, well, that's not attributable to radiation for any number of reasons that aren't true. Because if you look at around normally operating reactors, we see increases of childhood cancers, leukemias specifically, and central nervous system cancers you see this happening in normal, normally operating reactors. You see increases in childhood leukemias for natural background radiation that's a little elevated. All of that points to damage that is definitely occurring, that is definitely there, and it's definitely associated with radioactivity and exposure to it, even low doses. Cindy Fokers is radiation and health specialist for Beyond Nuclear. On March 11, 2011, 
a magnitude 9.0 quake hit off the coast of northeast Japan, triggering a tsunami that sparked the world's worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl, swamping backup power and cooling systems at the Fukushima plant. A commission appointed by Parliament later concluded that Fukushima was a profoundly man-made disaster that could have been prevented. And that's the news for Tuesday morning, September 12, 2023. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. You can reach the news at pauldurienzo.wordpress.com.